I don't know how many of you um, engage with film, whether you are a passionate kind of cinema goer or whether you're uh, like I am and you are now at the stage where because Blockbuster Video closed down, uh, you have to wait for it to come out on the telly. Uh, quick show of hands, who remembers Blockbuster Video? Okay, good. There's a good spread of generation there. I don't feel too old. But the more that I have uh, kind of reflected on film, the more I'm aware that there is always a common theme Always a common theme. Generally, yes, we can have kind of good versus evil. That tends to happen fairly frequently. But even more so than that is this common theme of rags to riches. I don't know if you've ever really stopped to think about the films that you watch, but they tend to take somebody or a situation or in the kind of current climate, uh, animals, and take them from ordinary things, people and they somehow become extraordinary. They, they move into this amazing situation. They do these wonderful things. It's a real common theme. Hollywood loves it. There's something magical about it, whether it's Jack stowed away on the Titanic, which I've never seen, but I know that happened. Whether it's Woody and Buzz saving other toys from Sid. Somehow, something ordinary, someone unamazing does something amazing. Cinderella... The Greatest Showman, we can keep going on and on and on, and I encourage you, not now while I'm talking, but when you're bored later, think about it. Hollywood is full of it. Nearly every single film somewhere uses somebody who shouldn't be the hero to be the hero, and it captures our imagination. It captures our imagination. Why? I like you guys, because we're ordinary. We fit into ordinary way better than we fit into superhero, unless one of you is keeping that real quiet. But we fit ordinary. So, of course, it captures our imagination when someone who we can relate to, a person who does life like we do it, suddenly does something exceptional, suddenly does something beyond what we would expect, going from a regular computer hacker to becoming the chosen one in the Matrix. Being a school janitor who somehow manages to find a mass sum on a board and solve it and gets this amazing support. Be it a diamond in the rough who somehow is a social outcast, has a worrying tendency for crime and jumping off buildings, becomes this amazing character in Aladdin. Hollywood is full of stories of regular people, outcasts, becoming wonderful becoming amazing. Now, I'm not going to ask you to publicly admit it, but in your heads, consider, have there ever been those moments where you've caught yourself daydreaming that you could do something amazing? Those moments where you just drift in your mind and you think of these wonderful things, it tends to happen frequently for me after being at the cinema. So never, ever go in a car with me after I've watched something like The Fast and the Furious, because in my head I'm like, I wonder if I could... You know, I've got an electric car, it doesn't have a handbrake, I can't. But it crosses your mind. I don't know how many of you, when you leave the cinema after watching the Bond films, go, you know what, I would make an awesome undercover agent. I would love a car that vanished. Or all of the crazy watches that he has. Something about us is drawn to it. We get caught up in it. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that humanity has an inbuilt desire for more. Something within us yearns for more than we have. We somehow seem to have been wired to be more than we maybe see in the mirror. 
This morning we're going to look at an amazing passage and I think we can conclude as we go through this morning that that desire was intentional. We are hardwired, as we've touched on numerous times over the last few weeks, designed by a creator God. And I don't think that it's a surprise that somewhere within us is a desire for more. I'm going to invite Gareth to come up. He's going to bring us our reading this morning. Thank you. This morning's reading is taken from the English Standard Version, Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 28, uh, 22 even. Jesus calls the first disciples. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Let's just pray a minute. Father God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the incredible riches that we see in it. And this morning, I just pray as we look at this passage, incredibly simple as it is, would you reveal more to us of who you are? Father God, may we see glimpses of who you see us as. God, would you change us? In your awesome name. Amen. Uh, For those of you who were at the church weekend away, uh, I preached on this passage. Please don't panic. It's not just that one again. Um, But I I love what happens in this um, short encounter. Very easily we get drawn to Jesus, and that's a good thing. But I wonder how often we consider the other characters. How often we take some time to focus on the other people within the story. Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew... And then later, James and John, fishermen. I wonder if you've ever considered when you've read this passage what we can conclude about these four. If you look at the text, what can we conclude about these four? I would challenge you, the only thing we can actually truly conclude is that they were fishermen. They were fishermen. That's about it. We could possibly push the boat out a little bit and say they were brothers. Like, we could probably conclude that, and that's fair. But the root of where they are coming from, the root of who they are, is fishermen. They didn't really have anything majorly interesting going for them. Weren't socially elite. Didn't really fit into any of the kind of high-end society things that would have been happening at the time. They were fishermen. They would have spent their time somewhere between the shoreline and the middle of the water. I don't know if you've ever really considered how amazing that fact is. How often we read these passages and we just drift past them because we know where we're going, so we want to get there. But how amazing is it that we get to this point? The problem we have is 
that we have the privilege of the whole thing. We don't get kind of sections. We don't, as we grow up, learn little bits of it. We have the whole thing. So when we read these early encounters of Jesus and the disciples, we don't read them as four fishermen. We read them as the development of the disciples. We read them knowing that they were a part of starting the church. We read them knowing that they saw some amazing things. They were involved in all these wonderful things that Jesus did. But at this point, forget everything they go on to do. And remember, they were just fishermen. They were just fishermen. So I'm going to just read again this passage, and I want you to hear it, and I pray you hear it without all of the knowledge that you have, all of the times that you've spent in church and learned other things. Just listen to the words that I speak. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them. Immediately they left their boats and their father and followed him. We have... Fishermen. That's it. The whole thing, everything that we know of, everything that we see in this and everything we see in our lives as a result of church and all of the foundational work that happened through the disciples and Jesus began at a point where they were just fishermen. Please forgive me if you think I'm banging on about this point. But... I want you to hear what I'm saying. These were not religious leaders. They were fishermen. They weren't high up within the structure of law. They were fishermen. They were not academics. They were fishermen. Simple, humble fishermen. If we can forget everything that we had learned, everything that we know, and come to the point of realization that Jesus, about to launch what will become one of the most amazing journeys over three years, and then become what we understand as the church and the entire movement of Christianity, I'm fairly sure our advice would be, Jesus, don't pick fishermen. Like, they are great on the water, but they are not like land creatures. Like, you leave them to the beaches, find some people that know stuff. Find some people that could help you be an influence in the courts. Find some people maybe that would get you like a good seat in the synagogue. But no, he begins everything with fishermen. The wonder of that for me is the most significant thing I think I take from that simple fact is the gospel is for everybody. It would be very easy for Jesus to have gone straight up the ladder and gone for some people up here. And then the rest of us who, as I said, I love you guys, but are fairly ordinary, would be like, man, I wish I could be like up here. But no, the gospel starts in amongst people, people of simple means, of regular lives. I don't know what you did when you came to faith, what your profession was, how you viewed yourself. For some of you, I'm not even sure. I don't know you well enough to know if you've made that commitment yet. But I want you to hear this truth. This whole thing, faith, 
is not about what you do. It is not about what you do. It's not about being able to present a CV before God and go, look at all the amazing stuff I've done, God. Surely I am a good person to put on your team. It's not about the credentials that you have, the experiences that you've made. This is not about what you can bring to the table. It's not about social standings or your income or your net worth, what you drive, the house you live in, the family that you keep, the friends that you spend time with, the meals that you can prepare. This is about none of that. The gospel at its very heart is about you. Not about what you do, not about what you can bring, not about what you've achieved, but you, who you are at the very center. And we see this when we see the calling of the first disciples. I may be stretched a little bit on the fisherman point at the start because I really hope that it would distract you from the only other real fact that we see in that first encounter. Yes, they were fishermen, I don't deny that, but the other thing we see is a willingness to follow. A willingness to follow. All you see, all we get, the privilege of knowing is that they were in their boat with some nets and Jesus said, follow me, and they immediately left their nets. The next encounter, they're fixing their nets with their father and Jesus says, follow me, and all we really know of that moment is they say, cool, okay. You know, if they're like me, they're not good at DIY, they probably thought this is a good way of getting out of jobs. But all we can see in those first encounters is that they were fishermen and that they followed. There is something wonderfully reassuring about the truth that who we think we are, who we think we are does not define our relationship with God. Who we see ourselves as does not define our relationship with God. For some of us, that's incredibly reassuring because we feel we're kind of low. We don't, you know, we, we can't do that. I struggle with this area. I don't really fit in. We find it hugely reassuring to hear of a gospel that is open to everybody because we can align ourselves with the nobodies. When we look in the mirror, we see a failure. We see struggles. We don't see ourselves as anything special. Of course, the flip side of that are those of us that stand and look in the mirror and go, you know what, I'm pretty good. I got it together. My life's going somewhere. My job is good. This, the company that I keep. Whatever it is, we have decided that somehow we have got it made. And actually, you know what? God would be pretty fortunate for us to decide to follow him. Now, we probably never articulate it like that. But somewhere in our minds, we've decided that we probably have earned the right to the things that we receive. We've deserved the opportunity to be counted as his children. But the truth of what we see in this passage is a level playing field. The truth of what we see is a level playing field. It doesn't really matter who you are. It doesn't really matter who you were. It doesn't matter what you've done. What we see is this understanding that each and every one of us comes as an equal when we come before God. And the amazing thing is, every single one of us is welcomed as an equal by God. It's incredibly powerful. It's a rags to riches story that would blow Hollywood out of the water. 
It reminds us that the gospel is required by all. Required by all. As we see here with the calling of the first disciples, it wasn't about what they brought to the table. And then we later on see in Mark 10 this amazing account. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Please hear that. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then you will have treasure. Then you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. At these words, he was sandened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. As much as we can bring to the table, as little as we have to offer, is not what it's about. What the gospel is about is about a story of a God who loved us so much he made an open invite to everybody and the only real thing that mattered in that moment of meeting with God was were we willing to follow? Humble fishermen did. This young gentleman couldn't. He couldn't. At these words, he was saddened. He went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Back to the disciples. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. I find that amazing. I really do encourage you. If you don't know Jesus, please do not rule yourself out. Please do not just assume you're not good enough. Come along on Alpha, an amazing course that just highlights this is very little about what we can do and a whole lot about what he's done. I do encourage you for that. But I don't want to just leave this message kind of hanging as this wonderful introduction. I don't want to leave it there as maybe for some of us a challenge that a lot of the things we think we've achieved didn't save us. I don't want to even just leave it there for those of us that feel maybe we haven't got anything to bring to feel like maybe we could get a shot at this whole faith thing. Instead, I want to just loop back so last week, for those of you who weren't here, we just looked at this challenge that Jesus laid before the disciples to return to a childlike faith. Please note, not childish, temper tantrums, all of that, no. What he said is a childlike faith, a dependency wholly on God. But why did Jesus bring up that challenge? We read in Mark 9, 33 to 37, They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. They kept quiet, because on the way they argued about who was the greatest. I don't know if you've ever really considered that argument what it looked like as they walked and squabbled and listed all the amazing things they'd done before Jesus. 
All the things they've done for Jesus, their faithfulness, their goodness, their generosity, apart from Judas. But generally, they would have had some amazing things to battle it out with about who was the greatest. How did it come to that? Just consider where we started. Fishermen with nothing to offer. They left everything they had in a boat, including family and fish, and they just followed. They came with nothing, and yet they had the arrogance to argue about who was the greatest. They came from having nothing, a gospel which welcomed them as they were. And somehow they ended up believing that they had the right to have an argument about who was the greatest. Humble fishermen, the Big 12, one of Jesus' in-crowd, invited to all the parties. How did we go from where we were to where we are? I pray this serves as a warning to us this morning. I really do pray this serves as a warning to each and every one of us. Because there is nothing that we have brought. There is nothing that we have done that has earned our salvation. There's nothing we've brought. There's nothing we've done. We've done that gave us a head start on anyone else that meant God went, you know what, I need to make sure they get in first because, you know, they're pretty good like, I can use them. We'll let the others in eventually, but there's nothing we've done. We are saved because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's what saves us. Not what we've achieved, not what we've clocked up, not how long you've managed to stay awake listening to me, not how many times you've been in this chapel, not how often you pray in the week or read your Bible, all good things, but you are not saved as a result of any of that. Because you could do all of that, and had Jesus not died on the cross, it would count for nothing. How did we go from humble fishermen to an argument about who is the greatest? Let this serve as a warning to us. We as the church, Big C, we as individuals, get caught in this trap. I can sit there, and I'm not proud of it, but I admit it, I can sit there in my office going, you know what? It's fine that I'm not great at remembering to pray because I'm a pastor. Like, that's got to count for something. That's got to buy me some credit. Like, I can definitely forget to maybe pray like two days a week because, you know, God, I do a lot of good stuff. Maybe for others of us, it works in a different way. Maybe we can sit here or we can go places and we look at others and go, gosh, I am so glad I'm not like them. God, I'm so grateful for who you made me to be, which is a great prayer, but not when we say it, looking across the street at someone else going, I am so glad I'm not like them, God. How do we get from desperately needing a savior to suddenly believing we were something special? We find ourselves bringing this worldly view of success. I'm using this word a lot. This idea of tangibles. We bring in this worldly understanding of how many people have you got to agree to, to sign up to a plan or how many things have you sold or you know, all of these things that the world uses to gauge us. We've decided to bring them into the church and yet when we read the beginning of the disciples' journey, we see they brought nothing. Please, please hear this. 
I'm not saved because of the job I do. I'm not saved because of the education that I have. I'm not saved because my parents brought me up in church. I am saved quite simply because Jesus died on a cross, gave me an invitation, and I followed. That's what saves us. So whatever you have going on in your life, wherever you find yourselves, I can promise you this. If you are not yet in a relationship with Jesus, the invitation is follow me. And all that he is looking at is will you follow? Will you follow? Not how much are you bringing, be it good or bad. He is looking at will you follow? But we get caught asking the question, God, who is the greatest? How can I compare? How do I know how I'm doing? I want to just read that first call again as we begin to close. I want to read that first calling of the disciples as we begin to close. But earlier I asked you to ignore everything that they went on to do. Now I want you to let your minds flood with all of the things that we read in the Bible about them. I could turn to any page in the gospel and the chances are I would find something amazing they did or they were involved in. Think of it. Think of all the things they achieved, all of the wonders that they saw, all of the things that they battled through, the start of the church, all of the ways that they served God once Jesus had gone, the way that they let the Spirit work through them. Just begin to consider all of those things as I read this beginning. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He saw and said to them, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. The message of the gospel, even the simple example we see through the disciples, is one that reminds us that this is about what God is doing, what God has done, and the fact that we are invited to be a part of it, irrelevant of what we bring to the table, irrelevant of what we maybe have achieved. But absolutely, 100%, I cannot make this point enough, it is all about, are we willing to hear the call and follow it? That's what sets the disciples apart at this stage. All that sets them apart from every other fisherman on the beach that morning was that they had a call and they followed. As I conclude, I want to make a few points. Everything I've said, please hear, understand, but please see it through this lens. You are amazing. You are incredible. I could not preach from Psalm 139 about being fearfully and wonderfully made, crafted together by God, knitted in the womb, all of those things. I couldn't say that with any integrity and not tell you, you are amazing. Why? 
covered in God's fingerprints, gifted, skilled, uniquely designed by him to serve a purpose. But it is not that that saves you. Oh, he'll use it. He'll use it. Four fishermen went on to do some amazing things they did not think they could do. The gospel is a rags-to-riches story. You have something amazing within you. God is desperate to use it. Be it the position you hold, the people you mix with, the way that you do your life, God will use that for his glory. But please hear, you are not saved by it. You are saved by the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus. It's not what you bring to the table. It's about what you do when you hear that call. It's not what you bring to the table. It's about what you do when you hear that call because I'm pretty sure the rich young ruler went, you know what, I'm definitely in because I could bankroll this whole show. That's what I can bring, Jesus. Jesus says, you know what, the only thing you lack is you're bringing a whole lot of money and I just need you to follow me, just you. And that was too much for him. It is not about what you think you can bring. It's about whether you will follow. Then I close with this. Because I know a lot of you and I know a whole bunch of you did the Talking Jesus series with us and you wrote five names down of people that you would love to see meet with Jesus. Please, if you take nothing else away from this, let it be this thing that you remember. No one is beyond the reach of God. No one. Why? They are just, gosh, their life is so good. Why would they need Jesus? They've got a private yacht. Why would they need Jesus? They own a business. Why would they need Jesus? Everything's running smoothly. They've got this lush house, all of these things. Why would they need Jesus? You know what? They are not beyond the reach of Jesus because all of that is not what saves them. And likewise, for some of you, you've got friends, family, where you're like, they are so far from God. They are so beyond his reach. Hear this. No one is beyond the reach of God. We cannot help but look at the world through the eyes that we have. And we see success and failure and all of those other things. When Jesus looked out upon the disciples... He saw lost sheep. He saw man blinded. He saw those that were in need of a saviour. And when he looks out on the world today, that's what he sees. People that need a saviour. No one is beyond the reach of God. (coughs) 